It's good to see you all this morning. Thank you for being here. Appreciate you, those of us who are joining us online, especially thankful those who are joining us in person. This morning, I want to continue in our series called Christmas, A Time of Hope, A Time of Healing. And today, I want to talk about a word that you hear a lot about during this time of the year. You'll see it on signs, you see it in store windows, you see it on people's lawns, you see it or you hear it in advertisements for cars and fine jewelry and all kinds of other things. I'm talking about the word joy. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about joy or what personally brings you joy, but joy is an essential part of the Christian life. Christianity is a joy-filled faith. In fact, Jesus said these words in John 15, 11. He said, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In the Bible, in the first story of Christmas, the word joy is used eight separate times. So it's a major theme of Christmas. It's why we say Merry Christmas, because it's a birthday. It's a celebration, and it brings joy to our hearts. So what in the world is joy? And why is it so important for our daily lives? Well, first we know that joy is an emotion. It's a feel-good emotion, and yet it is far more than that. And it's not to be confused with happiness because there is a noted difference between happiness and joy. You see, happiness is based upon what happens to you. Joy, on the other hand, is a choice. You choose joy. Happiness is external. It's based upon external circumstances. And, and you experience uh, happiness while you're in the middle of those circumstances, but then it can leave as quickly as it arrives. Joy, on the other hand, is internal character. It's what happens on the inside. And because of that, you can be joyful, even in the middle of difficult situations, even in the middle of grief. Whereas happiness depends on where you are at the moment. As an example, they call Disneyland the happiest place on earth. And I've taken my family there before, and I'm happy at the happiest place on earth. That is until I walk out and realize how much money I just dropped. <clears throat> and I'm not happy anymore. So in order to get happy, I gotta go back inside those gates and get more happiness. But true joy is on the inside. It's internal. It's not external. So happiness is temporary, while joy is eternal. It's long-term. In fact, the Bible tells us that heaven is going to be a place of nonstop and never-ending never -ending joy. My favorite definition of joy is one that resonates within my spirit, and it says this, joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of every detail of my life. Believe me when I tell you that that statement brings me joy. It does, and, and, I, and I'm, because I'm quite confident that everything will turn out all right. It may not be all right at this specific moment, but God is in control, and he's going to work it all out 
Ultimately, everything will be all right. So joy is a, is a determination to praise God, to honor God, to thank God in all things. That's a whole lot different than just feeling good. Because joy, as I said, is a choice. It is a character. Joy is a commitment. And God wants you to live a joy-filled life. Imagine what this world would be like if all of us had joy all the time. The world would certainly be a much better place. But the truth is, we don't have joy all the time. You don't have it all the time. And I don't have it all the time. Why? Because there are barriers of joy that we allow to, to overtake us. And they have a way of kind of oozing the joy right out of your life. And furthermore, when we are deeply caught up in these joy barriers, it becomes increasingly difficult to have our joy restored. And if you don't know what these barriers are, you're going to run up against them. And unfortunately, you're going to continue to fall into their traps because they are all enemies of joy. There are things that fight you from having joy all the time. And the truth is that sometimes you got to fight for joy. We live in a very negative world. Sometimes you have to fight to be positive. Does that make sense? You see, not everybody around you is joyful or happy or positive all the time. That's because of these three joy destroyers that I want to take a look at today. And by the way, you'll find all three of them in the first Christmas story. But rather than dwell on these three actual destroyers of joy, I want to focus on the three choices that were made. Choices made by Mary, by Joseph, by the wise men on that very first Christmas because the choices they made restored joy into their lives. But to restore joy, you have to first know what steals your joy. So the number one joy destroyer in your life is anxiety. Anybody ever deal with anxiety? I'm talking about when you get stressed out, when you're tense, when you're nervous, when you're scared, when you're afraid, when you're worried, when you're frightened. Anytime you get stressed out with worries, you lose your joy because you cannot be joyful and fearful at the same time. Now what most people don't think about is when you look at the, the Christmas story, we have this pretty little picture of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. But we seldom recognize the fact that there was a lot of stress, stress and a lot of anxiety that Mary was under at that time. The first Christmas was an anxiety producing event for this young girl. As I mentioned in week one, Mary wasn't that old when she gave birth to Christ. At most, she was probably 13, 14, 15 years of age. She's barely a teenager. In those days, people got married early because often they were dying by the time they were 35 years of age. So she's not some young woman in her 20s. She's barely a teenager, and she's engaged to a man named Joseph. When an angel approaches her, has a conversation with her, and tells her that she has been chosen by God to birth his son. It's what we call the virgin birth. And it's never happened to any woman before that or since. It's what the angel told her in Luke 135. He said, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born 
will be called the son of God. As I mentioned in week one, how are you going to explain this to your fiance? How are you going to explain this to your family and to your friends? She's single. She lives in a little town. The gossip about a single girl being pregnant and not married is scandalous. All of this created great anxiety in Mary's life. Then just a few days before she gives birth, she has to get on a donkey and make a two to a three day journey because of the census. They have to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. For all of you mothers here who have born children, can you imagine having to go through that just days and hours before you give birth? Then when she gets to Bethlehem, there's no hotel. There's no room for them to stay. So they end up sleeping in a stable with a bunch of farm animals. Not very clean. That night, this little teenage girl who had never had a relationship with a man, never has had a baby, she delivers her own baby without her mom, without anyone around other than Joseph and farm animals. Then, of course, the baby is the son of God. So added to all this stress is the fact that she's been called to raise God's son. You talk about anxiety-producing series of events. As we look at these unusual and these stressful details, it's easy for us to wonder if maybe there wasn't a whole lot of happiness going on at all at that moment. We doubt that maybe there was any joy whatsoever because anxiety robs you of your joy. But Mary, she made a choice that restored her upended life, that restored her joy to this life that had just been upended. And we would all do ourselves well to follow her lead. It's when in all of her anxiety, Mary chose to trust God and accept his plan. Now we covered a lot about Mary's story in week one, so I'm not gonna go into a bunch of details that I've already shared with you, but I will tell you a little secret. You have also been chosen by God for his purposes. God has a purpose for each one of your lives, just like he had a purpose for Mary. But if you're not careful, you'll completely miss it. You'll miss the purpose of your life unless you do what Mary did by choosing to accept it. She trusted in and accepted God's plan. In fact, most people in the world miss their purpose for life precisely because they don't make this choice that Mary made. When Mary was anxiety ridden by all of this, this initial news, she chose to trust God and to accept his plan. So allow me to pause this morning and ask you a question. What are you anxious about this Christmas? What has got you all uptight? What keeps you awake at night? Is it your finances? Is it your health? Are you worried or wondering if you're gonna get engaged this Christmas? Maybe you worry if your, your marriage is gonna to stay together. Or maybe you're having great anxiety about how you're gonna pay for Christmas. Is there anxiety over your profession, over your job? 
Or maybe you're just flat stressed out looking ahead to the new year. I don't know what is driving your anxiety this morning, but I do know the antidote without even knowing the details. It's the same antidote that Mary applied by trusting in God and accepting his plan. You take everything that you are experiencing anxiety over and you put it in God's hands. You say, God, this is bigger than me. I cannot possibly figure it all out, but I'm going to just trust you. I'm going to accept your plan. Even though I don't understand every detail, I'm not going to carry this anxiety anymore by myself. This is exactly what Mary did at Christmas. In Luke 138, Mary responds to all of this news that she's been told. She says, I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word to me be fulfilled. That's a very mature response from a very young girl. She says, I'm willing to accept whatever God has for my life. I belong to God, he made me. So if he's got a plan for my life, I'm going to follow his plan. I'm gonna let him take the lead. Have you ever said something like that to God before? If you haven't, that's why you're anxiety ridden. That's what gets you stressed out because you haven't made the merry decision. You cannot live a joyful life and live an anxiety-driven life at the same time. Everybody has to make this decision at some point. Otherwise, you won't live a life of joy. And until you do, you're not going to experience real, lasting joy. But the result of saying that and making that choice, it will always result in joy. Look at Luke 147. Mary said this, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She's saying, my spirit finds joy in the Lord, and I'm gonna trust him, and I'm gonna accept his plan. Well, the second destroyer of joy in your life is resentment. It's when you hold on to resentment over a hurt, because you cannot be resentful and joyful at the same time. Resentment rears its ugly head whenever you've been hurt, whenever you have been wounded. Everybody listening to me this morning, whether online or in this building, has been wounded, has been hurt before. You've been wounded by words from other people, and you still remember those words today from your childhood. Some of you have been wounded physically. Some of you have been abused sexually. Some of you have been abused emotionally. And I just want to say I'm ter terribly sorry for that. I am. But this world in which we live in is broken. And life is not fair. Because this world is full of sin. In our rebellion against God, it has caused us to hurt one another. Sometimes we do it intentionally. Sometimes we do it unintentionally. And we've all been hurt by other people, but we've also hurt other people as well. It goes both ways. And as a result, we're all wounded. As a result, we all carry around hurts. Some of you have been offended deeply through some form of prejudice or some form of, of bigotry. Some of you know what it's like to be betrayed because you've been betrayed by another. Some of you have been rejected. Some of you have gone through all kinds of mistreatment. And again, let me just say, I'm sorry for that. I don't know all the ways in which you have been hurt, 
But I'm telling you this morning, regardless of how you've been hurt, you've got to deal properly with your response. Resentment and bitterness will, and hurt will prevent you from having any joy in your life that God wants you to have. We've seen this with people who got hurt when they were very young and they carried the resentment their entire life. They were mad, they were bitter, they were angry. They carried a grudge and guess what? They died a bitter old man and a bitter old woman because they never knew how to let it go. You can't be resentful and joyful at the same time. Now let's look at the first Christmas. Have you ever considered how wounded Joseph was when he got the news that his wife-to-be, this woman who he loves, who he has never been with sexually, all of a sudden comes up and says, hi, honey, I've got some news. I'm pregnant. How betrayed would you feel, men or women, if your fiancé said that to you? How wounded would you be by that? If you're a woman, your, your fiancé says, I am having a child with another woman. How much would that devastate you? Well, you'd feel just like Joseph did. You'd, he felt betrayed. He probably felt cheated. Certainly, he was greatly disappointed. And many of you, as I said, know what it's like to be betrayed. The Bible tells us that Mary and Joseph were betrothed to each other. That's an old word that we don't use today. It means much more than a simple engagement here in the 21st century. Today, if somebody is engaged and it doesn't work out, you just call an end to it. No big deal. You give the ring back. Sometimes you don't give the ring back, you sell it on Craigslist. Try to put a little sting in the guy who just spent thousands of dollars on that ring that you're selling to somebody else. But in those days, betrothal was a, a legal contract that, that would, you would sign a year in advance of your wedding day. And during that time, you're not sleeping together. You're not having intimate relationships. You're not actually married yet, but in all senses, you really are because it was a legal contract. You were bound together. In fact, if you broke that contract, the only way you could get out of a betrothal was actually through divorce because it was considered just like a marriage. That's how binding it was. Jewish law said if either party was unfaithful during the betrothal period, the legal consequences were serious. So Joseph, when he hears his fiance, his future wife is pregnant, he's brokenhearted. Because you see, God hadn't told Joseph anything yet. But God was going to tell him. So he's upset. He has every right to be. He has every right to be hurt. But Joseph doesn't seek to retaliate. He does not seek revenge. He does not get bitter. He does not get resentful. In fact, he made a wise choice. When he was hurt, Joseph chose to offer grace and let it go. He chose to offer grace and let the pain and the hurt and the wound go. Now think about this. God could have saved Joseph a whole lot of pain by telling him all of this information the same time he gave the news to Mary. But he intentionally didn't do that. 
God could have got Mary and Joseph together, sent an angel to both of them and said, okay, guys, here's the game plan. Mary's going to get pregnant, but it's not going to be your child, Joseph. It's going to be from God. And they both could have said, okay, I get it. But he didn't do that. And God does this intentionally. He just tells Mary, and now Joseph has to go through all of this agony, thinking that his fiance has been unfaithful to him. So what is God doing here? He is testing Joseph's character. He wants to see if Joseph will be compassionate. Will he be forgiving? Will he be loving? Will he be a good and godly man? Or is he going to choose to get even? Will he get angry? Will he get mean with her? Will he say, okay, you were unfaithful to me. Now I'm going to go over and be unfaithful with someone else. No, Joseph chose to offer grace and to let the pain go. He had every reason to be hurt. He had every reason to be wounded, but he didn't fly off the handle and he doesn't attack Mary in his hurt. He offers her grace. Matthew 1, 18 through 19 says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph's a good man. He's a godly man. He loves Mary, but he believes that she's been unfaithful to him. And they haven't even lived together yet. But in all of that, he didn't want to shame Mary, which would have been the normal response from anybody else. Instead, Joseph offers us the most beautiful example of grace. He doesn't dig in. He doesn't rub in. He doesn't publicly embarrass her. He doesn't try to shame her. He just says, okay, let's just go ahead and call the wedding off. He's doing the best that he can. That's how he handled it. Let me ask you a question. What has hurt you deeply? What person in your life has hurt you more than anybody else. You know immediately that they come right into your mind. And then I want to follow it up with a second question. How long are you going to hang on to that hurt? If you continue to hang on to that hurt, I can guarantee you that's one of the reasons that you don't have any joy in your life. You cannot be resentful and joyful at the same time. That's why you've lost your joy. Because you can't have both. And here's something that you need to understand. Resentment is the most worthless emotion on this planet. It does nothing but make you miserable. Resentment will never change the past. Resentment will never change what happened. Bitterness doesn't make you feel better. It only makes you feel worse. Somehow in our mind, we think if we can hold on to that hurt and, and keep rehearsing it over and over again, and that wound gets opened back up and it starts hurting us all over again, we think by holding on to that hurt that somehow we're getting even with that person, that we're getting our revenge, but you're not hurting them at all. You're only hurting yourself with resentment. While you're thinking, oh, look what they did to me. They've gone about their life and they, they haven't once thought about the pain that they caused me for many years. You're only making yourself miserable. 
Listen, as your pastor and as somebody who deeply cares about you, it's my job to help you succeed in life. And you can't succeed with resentment. Some of you are carrying a hurt from the past months, years. Some of you are carrying hurts from decades ago, 10 years times five, 50 years of resentment. But you know something? The people who hurt you cannot hurt you anymore without your permission. And every time you rehearse that hurt over and over in your mind, you grant them that permission. And the resentment and the bitterness overwhelms you once again. You allow them to hurt you again and again and again, and that's dumb. It is illogical, it is irrational to hold on to a hurt. So you've got to somehow let it go. You know, long before you were born, God knew that on Christmas of 2021, you would be here today at High Point Assembly. He knew that before you were even born so that he could get your attention and he could say to you this morning, you gotta let it go. You gotta let that wound heal. You're not gonna change anything holding on to that hurt. And you may say, well, Pastor David, they don't deserve forgiveness. Of course they don't deserve it, but neither do you. And yet God has forgiven you for all kinds of stuff, hasn't he? You don't forgive people because they deserve it. Nobody deserves forgiveness. You forgive people because you don't want to hold on to that pain anymore. And through forgiveness, you are actually set free. Never forget this about resentment. You're not hurting them. You're only hurting yourself. You need to let it go like Joseph did. You need to show grace and you need to let the pain go. Well, the good news on that first Christmas is that God doesn't keep Joseph in the dark forever. He does send an angel to him in a dream. And in Matthew 1.20, it begins with these words, after he had considered this. In other words, after Joseph had decided, I'm going, not going to get even, I'm not going to retaliate, I'm not going to seek revenge, I'm not going to strike out at her, I'm not going to express shame, I'm not going to pile it on her, I'm just going to offer grace, and I'm going to get on with my life, and I'm going to let it go. After he decided to do that, he's now passed God's character test. God says, okay, Joseph, you've passed the test. Matthew 1.20, let me read that whole scripture. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And because Joseph didn't get bitter, God blessed him in an incredible way. He gets the blessing and the honor and the privilege of raising the Son of God. He is the stepfather of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God blessed him specifically because he didn't get better. So just like Joseph, you've got to decide what you want in this life. Do you want to be bitter or do you want to be blessed? It's totally up to you. God gives you that choice. And if you're going to choose joy, 
Like Mary, you must choose to trust God. You must choose to accept his plan, even though you don't know all of the details. And if you want to choose joy like Joseph, then you're going to have to choose to show grace and, and let it go when people hurt you. And it's in those moments, ladies and gentlemen, that you will receive God's blessings upon your life. And maybe you think, Pastor David, I just can't do this. I don't have the strength to forgive that person. Well, that's why you need a savior. That's why God sent a savior at Christmas, because you cannot possibly do this in your own strength and on your own. You need God's power. The only way that you are going to receive God's power is to get God's savior into your life. Nehemiah 8.10 says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That means now you have joy instead of bitterness and resentment and anger. There's a third common destroyer of joy that we see in this wise man's story. The third destroyer of joy in your life is confusion. Because when you're confused about life, it'll drain your joy. When you can't figure out what you're supposed to do, when you can't make up your mind, when you keep second guessing and doubting yourself, when you make decisions and continually backtrack on those decisions, when you're undecided and confused about the direction of your life, there's no way you're gonna possess joy. Over my years in ministry, I have talked to a large amount of people who've had many personal problems. And the number one question that I am asked is, what am I supposed to do with my life? I'm confused. I don't know what to do in this situation. What direction should I take? Now at that first Christmas, everybody was confused except the angels because they know what's going on. Mary and Joseph are confused. They don't know what's going on. The shepherds, they're confused when the angels show up in the sky. They go, what is this all about? The wise men are confused. King Herod is confused. He, he lives in Jerusalem and he's confused too. He says, I'm supposed to be the king of the Jews. And now that I'm hearing that the king of the Jews has been born, what's this all about? Now for these wise men, their, confu their confusion had to deal with what direction do we take? They've seen the star in the east and they're, they're, they're heading west. They don't have a map. They don't have a schedule. They're confused. They, they simply realize something is going on here that is very special. We don't know what it is, but obviously it's very, very important. And understand, these men are students of the skies and the stars. They're astronomers. They are scholars. They realize we better find out what this is. And they just take off by following the light that they've been given. And, and they weren't even sure where they were headed. In fact, when they got to Jerusalem, they had to ask for directions. They asked, where is the king of the Jews to be born? Even though they didn't know where they were going or what was happening and didn't understand the details, here's the choice that they made. When confused, the wise men chose to follow God's light one step at a time. Can I remind you that uh, the Christian walk is not a sprint? It is a marathon. And you have to take it one step at a time. The story of the wise men is found in Matthew 2, 1 through 3. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? 
We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. I want you to notice several things about these wise men. First, they're seekers. They are seekers of God. They said, we've come from the east. We don't actually know where we're headed, but we're seeking God. Some of you listening to me this morning online and in this place are seekers of God. You just haven't stepped across that line of faith yet. You don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ yet, but you're still seeking him. That's okay. If you're a seeker, you found the right place because this is a place that welcomes seekers of the truth. Because if you are intellectually honest, I believe you will recognize the truth and you will make the right decision. You see, God's never going to fool you. God is never going to try to con you. If you're genuinely seeking him, you will find him. Being a seeker is a good thing because a lot of people don't care enough to be a seeker or to check things out. These guys were seekers. They were scholars. They were intellectuals. They were philosophers. But they were also just plain smart because you know what is really unwise is not seeking to know the creator who made you and not discovering what your purpose in life is. It doesn't make sense to go through life totally estranged from the creator who made you. If there's a God out there, I better want to know him and I better want to know what his plan is for my life. These wise men are wise because they're seeking God. And please note that they're serious enough to invest their time, to invest their money, to invest their energy to do so. If they're coming from Persia or even further east, this is not a day trip, ladies and gentlemen. This has been a journey that has taken them months. They've got a caravan of people that have joined them. So let me ask you this morning, what are you willing to invest to get to know God this morning? What? That'll tell me how smart you are. That'll tell me how wise you are. What are you willing to invest to know your creator? They were willing to invest whatever it took. Are you willing to, to invest whatever it takes to discover God? The Bible says that they headed out in faith with the light from the star that they were given. They saw the star, and obviously this wasn't like any other star out there in the galaxy because this star, it moved. At one point, the light lands right over the house where Jesus is. You're saying, why not the manger? History tells us that the wise men didn't show up till much later. They weren't there that night as the nativity scene shows us. It's a beautiful picture, but that's not what happened. These guys showed up later when he was in a home. They're following the light that God has given them, and they're doing it in faith. They didn't need to wait to understand all of the details. They just started out on their journey to find God. And by the way, you shouldn't either. You shouldn't try to figure out all of the details before you get to know God. You just start out on your journey. You start with the light that you have been given, what has been revealed to you. And, and that's one of the things that I really want you to notice about these wise men. It says that when these seekers arrived to Jerusalem, it really upset King Herod. Because he's jealous. He says, you guys are coming for the king? I thought I was the king. It so upset 
everyone in Jerusalem because the political order was getting upset over the Messiah's arrival. And as a pastor, I'm going to tell you the truth this morning. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to tell you the downside as well as the upside. Here's the downside of seeking Jesus. If you genuinely seek Jesus, somebody's not going to like it. Somebody in your life is going to get upset. Somebody's going to get bothered, just like Herod did. It upsets some people. I don't know why, but when some people try to get close to God, it makes other people in their life very uncomfortable. But here's how the story goes. Herod asks his Bible scholars, where is the king of the Jews, the Messiah, supposed to be born? And they answer him in Bethlehem. Look at Matthew 2, 8. It says this, then King Herod sent them to Bethlehem with these instructions. He sent the wise men. Go and diligently search to find this child as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him too. He's lying through his teeth. Herod has no intention of going to worship that child. He's going there to assassinate him. He doesn't want any competition. He's jealous. He's insecure. Remember I told you in week one he had numerous family members killed for fear and nerves that they might want to overthrow his power. The reason we know he wasn't intending to go and worship God is because when the wise men did find Jesus in a dream, they were warned not to go back through Jerusalem and not to go back to Herod. So they returned another way. They heeded the, the, the dream that God had given them. And in response, Herod sends out his army to Bethlehem to kill every baby under two years of age. You talk about paranoia. Now, Mary and Joseph have already been warned about this, and so they've already left. They've gone to Egypt. In fact, Jesus' early years were in Egypt because of this threat on his life. So these wise men, they, they didn't give up their search until they actually find Jesus. And I hope that that is your story this morning as well. Some of you went to church when you were a kid. You gave up halfway. You know about Jesus, but you don't really know Jesus. But these wise men, they didn't give up until they actually found him. In Matthew 2, 9 and 10, it says this, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were what? They were overjoyed. One translation says they were filled with exceedingly great joy. In the Greek, that means they were filled with exceedingly great joy. This is the cool thing about intellectuals because intellectuals tend to go by their head, not by their heart. They push down their emotions. They go with what seems logical to them. Well, these guys are really, really joyful. And the cool thing about that is this. God didn't give them a map. All he gave them was a little guiding light, and they eventually end up getting to where God wanted to get them. You know what the problem is with you and me? We always want a map, don't we? Everybody wants a map for their life. We want God to mail us a map and say, here's where you were born, and here's where you're going to die, and you will go to heaven, and here's everything that happens in between those two eventful moments. You and I want it all disclosed. 
so that we can prove it in advance. We can say, I approve of that plan, God. But God is never gonna give you a plan for your life. Why? For two reasons. One, if you knew of everything that was going to happen in your life, it would scare you spitless. Because as that army officer said in the movie, you can't handle the truth. Remember, God gives you enough grace for today. He also gives you grace for tomorrow. But you say, well, God, tell me what's gonna happen tomorrow. He says, no, because I haven't given you grace for tomorrow yet, I've given you grace for today. When you get there, he says, I will give you the grace to handle that moment. You'll be able to handle it. But since you're in today, don't worry about tomorrow. The second reason that God is never going to give you a map of your life is because if you knew it all, you would have no need to trust in him. You wouldn't have to depend on him. You wouldn't have to pray. You'd say, I've got it all right here. I see the end of my life. God, I'm good. I'm golden. Talk to you later. Here's the deal. God is not going to give you a map of your life any more than he gave those wise men a map. Instead, God has given you something better. He gave you a compass. He also gave you a guiding light. You already have it, whether you realize it or not. What's a compass? A compass just says go in that direction. It doesn't tell you all the little details that are gonna be along your trail. You get to decide. You get to decide what experiences you're gonna have while on that trail. So what is the compass for your life? It's called the Bible. The more you are in God's written word, the more direction that you are going to receive for your life. The less that you are in the Bible, the more confused you are gonna be able to be. It's as simple as that. The more that you are going to run into dead ends, you're gonna, you're gonna circle around and you're gonna double back. The more you will repeat last year over and over again because you're not following the compass he has given you. God's written word points you into the right direction then you make wise decision based upon godly principles that you've read about in his word. That's the Bible. That's the believer's compass. It's God's written word. So what is the guiding light? It's God's spirit within you, giving you wisdom, giving you discernment, giving you further guidance by continually nudging you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Here's what the Bible says in Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. The more you get to know God's word, the more you're gonna know what's going on in your life and how to get there and what to do. Matthew 2, 11, it shows us the wise men's response once they finally get to the place where Jesus is. It says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They finally meet Jesus. So my question for you this morning is simple. Have you ever met Jesus? I'm not talking about knowing who Jesus is. Everybody knows about Jesus. You might say, well, I heard about Jesus in Sunday school. I went to catechism classes. I attended church when I was a kid and I believe there's a Jesus. And my response to you would be, so what? Even the devil believes that. The devil is not an atheist. He certainly knows that there is a God in heaven that exists. 
But there's a difference in just knowing that he exists and, and, and actually experiencing him. There's a big difference between the two. You see, you'll know if you've met Jesus personally by, there's actually two things that, that, that these intellectuals did that I want to point out to you when they finally personally had their encounter with Jesus. And they're the same two things that happen to us when we have a personal encounter with him. First, you're overwhelmed with humble gratitude. It's when you finally realize what God has done for you in sending a savior to this earth. If you don't get that, it's because you don't understand the magnitude of how important it is that God can do things in your life that you cannot do for yourself, like get to heaven and a lot of other things as well. The more you understand Jesus, that Christ child who grew up and became a man and who died on the cross for your sins, the more you get to know him, the more humbly grateful you become. Have you ever in your life felt like falling on your knees before God and saying, God, I am so grateful for your love? If you've ever felt that way, you know Jesus. If you've never felt like doing that, you don't really know him. You may have gone to church your entire life, but you really don't know Jesus. It's the difference between knowing about and actually knowing him and experiencing him. The second thing that these intellectuals did, it says they opened their treasure boxes and gave him gifts. When you really know Jesus, you want to give him the best that you've got. Why? Because you realize that he gave you his very best. God cared enough to send his very best. He didn't send an angel. He sent his only son. It says that they opened their treasure boxes. So what is in your treasure box this morning? I'll tell you whatever your treasure is, whatever you value the most, if you value your job more than anything else, that's in your treasure box. If you value your golf game or your boat, that's in your treasure box. If you value your grandkids the most, they're in your treasure box. None of those things are bad things. I'm just saying whatever you value the most is what you hold into your treasure box. And when you get to know Jesus, you say, God, you've really given me everything that I have. You gave me the best. And therefore, the natural response is that I want to give my best back to him. There's a lot of people listening today, listening to my voice, and you need a rescue. You need healing you need a breakthrough this morning. You've lost your joy. And you're just going through the motions day after day after day. You're not joyful at Christmas. You're not joyful at other times of the year. You're just hoping to get through another day. When you've lost your joy, the truth is you're not very happy. And furthermore, it may just make you flat out miserable. You may have lost your joy due to anxiety. You just got too many worries. You got too many fears. You got, you got too many anxieties. And you're just keeping it all pushed down inside of you because you don't want anybody to know the true story. We put on this great facade and we, and we think that people won't see through it. 
You may have lost your joy because of, of, of wounds that you suffered a long time ago. And it feels today like it felt the day that you were still wounded. You still carry that hurt. And every time you think about it, it's like you're driving a knife deeper and deeper into that wound. You don't know how to let it go. You don't know how to get rid of it. You can't be joyful and be resentful at the same time. Some of you don't have any joy because you're confused. You say, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. I feel like I'm a hamster on a wheel and I just keep running. I don't even know where I'm going. I don't even see where I'm going. I'm just going through the motions. Yeah, I've got a job. But how is next year going to be any different than it's been the last 15 years? You know what you need? You need help from heaven. This help is called a savior. That's what Christmas is all about, ladies and gentlemen. It's about the arrival of the Messiah, our Savior, the Son of the living God. Believe me, if you didn't need a Savior, God wouldn't have wasted his time to send one. And this morning, I don't care if you are Baptist, if you are Buddhist, if you are Catholic, if you are Muslim, if you are Mormon, if you are atheist, or if you are an agnostic, whatever, Jesus says, I bring good news of great joy to all people. We tend to focus on America. God brought great joy for Americans. No, he brought great joy for everyone. He says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you've done it with or how long you've been doing it. I bring good news of great joy to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And he died a horrific death on a cross. And the blood that he shed literally covers it. It literally atones and cleanses us. And all we have to do is to receive his free gift of salvation. That Jesus, I might add, was born to die for, to provide for us. It's to acknowledge him and to accept him as savior of our personal lives. And his resurrection that we celebrate on Easter Sunday, well, that symbolizes the eternal life that you are given because you have allowed Jesus to have lordship over your life. Because when our time on this earth is done, yes, our bodies do give away and they die, but your spirit never dies. It lives forever. And so those who are in Christ Jesus, they will spend eternity in God's presence. What a gift. It is something you do not want to pass up. And in a moment... I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus, to receive this gift. Scott, would you guys come forward and help me? Today, we are going to participate in Holy Communion together. And we're going to remember what it is that Christ did for us. He wasn't just that cute little baby that was born on that first Christmas. He grew up. He showed us the love in the heart of God. He healed, he restored, he loved. He brought us salvation. And that's what we celebrate Christmas and every day. I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward and we will pass out the communion emblems and then we will get back to you.
Has everyone been served communion? If not, could you raise your hand so we could give it to you? Are we good in the balcony? You're good? Okay. Now is the time after all that you've heard this morning where you're given the opportunity to act upon what you've heard. If what you have heard today sounds attractive to you, if you you feel like you're lacking joy in your life and you have never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, this is your time to do so. I wanna read a couple of verses uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 and 29. It talks about communion. It says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. See, communion is actually an activity that is set aside for believers, those who have placed their lives, their trust, their hearts, and their hope into the Lord Jesus Christ. And this scripture makes it clear that to take communion when your heart is not right with God is doing so in an unworthy manner. And it actually says when you do so, you drink judgment upon yourself. So this is a time when the Bible says that we must examine ourselves and determine if we are in a right relationship with God. And if not, you either take care of that today or you do not participate in communion because you would be doing it in an unworthy manner. We're gonna have a moment of silence and all you're gonna hear is the music that is playing softly behind me. And during that time, if you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life, ask him to forgive you of your sin, ask him to, to take lordship over you, you will say as the, you will receive, as the Bible says, salvation. In order to receive salvation, you believe and you confess. You believe that Jesus is the son of God. You believe he is the only way to God the Father. You believe that he came and he died on a cross and that the blood he shed atones for your sin. And as I said, you ask him to forgive you of your sin you ask him to be Lord of your life. When you do that with sincerity of heart, Jesus cleanses you, the Bible says, of all unrighteousness. You're forgiven. You're given a fresh start. Then the Holy Spirit of the living God indwells you and he will provide you with direction and he will provide you with wisdom and those nudges that I talked about earlier in my message to live life in a new and a different way in a God-honoring way. And then maybe, perhaps, for the very first time in your life, you will be able to celebrate Christmas for the right reason, with joy in your heart and understanding why Christ came in the first place. But I also wanna talk to those here who have already received salvation. This is also a time where we must examine our hearts as well. 
Are you carrying around any unconfessed sin? If so, you need to ask forgiveness for that. Are you harboring unforgiveness and, and, and hatred towards someone else or, or dislike for someone else? You need to clear that up. Are you walking around with an attitude that is contrary to what God would have you walk around in? And are you resisting the things that he wants to do in your life? No, I've gone far enough, God. You don't get any more of me. You need to talk about that with the Lord. There is a problem there if you're not willing to allow God to have full access to who you are. And a lot of Christians do that. We want to know that we're saved. We want to know that we're going to heaven, but we don't allow God to do anything more in us when, as I told you earlier, he has a plan for your life. And if you don't discover what that plan is, you're never going to live that life in joy. That's why it's important to find out. Let's all go to the Lord in a moment of silence this morning, silent prayer, pray to God in your own words, ask him to forgive you for the sin in your life, ask him to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And if you're harboring unforgiveness towards someone, not only ask for forgiveness for that, but plan to leave this place and clear up that problem, that relationship. Let's take a moment to pray to our Lord and remove any and all obstacles, anything that would prevent us from taking communion today in an unworthy manner. You may bow your head. Father, you've read our hearts even before this time of silent prayer. And you've heard the words that we in our mind have spoken to you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for your wonderful grace that is with us every moment of day. Thank you for your spirit which guide and directs. Father, help us to be reminded of what a special moment this is time when we remember what Christ did in allowing us to have a relationship with you, to reconcile us to God the Father, to offer us eternal life when our time on this earth is done. For that, Lord, we are ever grateful. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this bread represents my body, 
which is, was soon going to be broken for them. They didn't understand everything that was going on, his disciples, but it was soon going to be broken for you. And he said, every time you do this henceforth, I want you to do so in remembrance of me. So as you take this bread and eat it today, I want you to be reminded of the broken and bruised and battered body of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of this, do also in remembrance of what I've done for you. And as you drink this juice today, I want you to be reminded of the precious blood of the lamb that poured out of the sinless son of God to cover and to atone for our sin. You may drink the juice. Stand to your feet as we sing. please father we thank you for Christmas we thank you for the birth of a Savior we thank you that that baby grew up taught us how to live taught us how to love showed us mercy and grace and forgiveness and because of that now we can be in a relationship with you and we can know where we will spend eternity when our life here is done 
What an incredible gift that we thank you for. Father, that alone brings joy to our hearts, and yet we know that there are a lot of things that block joy. And I pray in the name of Jesus that this would be the most joyous Christmas that my church family would ever experience. That we would look past the stress, the anxiety, the hurts, the resentment. We will rise above it through the power of your spirit and that we would walk joyful lives, not just this Christmas, but every day of our Christian journey. Thank you for all that we need to do that. Thank you for the power of your spirit. Thank you for the strength of your word, the light that you put upon our path, that if we follow, we will succeed and we will be a joyous people. So fathers, we go our separate ways today. I pray that your spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our past, the steps that we take, the conversations that we have. Father, those conversations would build people up and not tear them down. Pray that the love of Christ would shine so brightly in us that others could not help but see it and not only see it but be intrigued by it and even come and ask us what it is that's different about us and then you open that door for us to share your goodness with someone else. Father, I pray that during this Christmas season we would all be given an opportunity to share our faith with at least one person, to invite them into the household of faith. Pray that you will use each and every one of us. Lord, between now and the time we meet together again, I also pray that you will keep us safe from any sickness, disease, or illness that might fall upon us. I also pray that you will keep us safe from accidents or anything that would prevent us from joining together as a church family and worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Let us leave here today with the love of Christ in our heart and sharing it with those who we come into contact with and give us joy. Replace our anxiety with joy. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here.